So it's Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7 for our sermon entitled, Resolving Conflicts in the Church. You should follow along as I read. It says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom you may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, and a proselyte from Antioch. And they brought them before the apostles, and after praying, uh, they laid hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. A woman was washing the dishes after lunch at the sink when she heard arguing and shouting from the kids in the backyard. Hey, you kids, stop your fighting, mother called out. Oh, don't worry, Mom, it's okay, we're just playing church. Now sometimes, though, the fights in church are not just play. They're the real thing. I did a Google video search, putting in the words church fights. A number of videos popped up, and one, a pastor was preaching a Christmas message. And as he read the words, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to, and just at that moment, a man walking across the front row reached up and smacked a guy in the face who got up with his fist and they went at it right there and then. In another news segment video, it reported on events that happened at St. Michael's Baptist Church. A dispute started over a question of church finances. It broke out into arguing and fighting during the service. Uh, members were shouting and pointing at each other while the organ player just kept playing his gospel music. Now, some churches, uh, members brought a lawsuit against the pastor, but he plans on countersuing for defamation of character. And yet another church, a pastor was voted out of office, but he still showed up on Sunday morning to preach. Church members called the police, and the pastor was arrested, handcuffed, and taken away in the middle of his sermon. He was charged with trespassing and disorderly conduct. The pastor believes that the church violated its own bylaws by firing him. That dispute also went to court. To live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. But why are churches prone to division and fighting? I mean, it seems like the one place that you ought to be able to have people get along without conflict is in the church, right? Well, some things need to be said even now. It's not just that churches uh, that have problems with people getting along. Have all the places you've worked at been free from tension and disunity and backbiting? Have any of the places you worked at been free from such? I remember working at a restaurant where the manager thought it'd be a good idea to have an all-store meeting uh, to get people to vent their grievances and then get them taken care of, and that way we could all get along. Well, within a short while after the meeting began, uh, it turned into a shouting match. How come I still have to work the graveyard shift? I'm sick and tired of doing all the work around here. Yikes. That didn't produce the unity the manager was hoping for. 
And even in small groups, it's hard to achieve peaceful relationships. I mean, in a marriage, you've only got two people, and yet how many break up because of irreconcilable differences? How many rock bands break up because the band members can no longer get along? You know, it wasn't just Yoko Ono's fault that the Beatles split. The band The Eagles in the 1980s, it happened on stage when they were performing. Two of the band members threatened violence against each other right in front of the audience. The Everly Brothers, who could sing in perfect harmony, one night at Hollywood Bowl when they were performing, Don Everly showed up drunk for the performance. His brother Phil got so mad at him messing up the lyrics that he took his guitar, smashed it over Don's head, and then walked off stage. How many football teams have loads of talent, but the egos of the players make the locker room atmosphere so toxic that eventually they have to cut the players to get rid of the bad attitudes? See, it's not just in churches where you have division and infighting. Second reason, though, is the devil works hard to sow division and disunity within the church. You've heard that old saying, divide and conquer? Well, Jesus said in the parable of the wheat and the tares that the tares represent the false believers that the devil plants among the true believers in the church. Paul warned us in Romans 16, 16 to 17, he said, Now I urge you, brethren, keep an eye on those who cause dissension and hindrances contrary to the teachings which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Third reason, though, is as painful as division and splits are, they're sometimes necessary. I mean, after castigating the Christians in the city of Corinth for the divisions that they had among them, Paul nevertheless went on to say, For there must also be factions among you, so that it may be a peer who's been approved by God. The only thing worse than a church splitting apart is one that stays together and compromises the truth. It's not a tragedy that so many United Methodist churches are withdrawing from the denomination over LGBTQ rights. They should have left years ago. Now, sometimes... It's great theological and moral issues that are at stake. Other times, it's just problems that are not so great, but they still pose a danger of bringing division within the body of Christ. It's for that reason that we need to learn how to resolve conflicts in the church when they occur, and to do so in such a way that the issues are faced, people are respected, and God is honored, and the church is preserved in unity. Well, today we have a story of a conflict that arose in the early church the issue was brought to the attention of the apostles who dealt with it wisely so as to satisfy all those who were involved and to allow the church to continue with its primary mission. So this morning, what we want to do is we want to look at this incident and then draw out some principles for handling conflict within the church. So why don't you pray and get into the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy as we look at this. Conflicts are inevitable because we're all sinners and because uh, the devil works against us having unity. But Father, we know from our own experience the pain of church splits and all of that. So we want to be taught from your word this morning that we might help preserve the unity of the church. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing uh, we see in the text is the problem that they faced. The problem that they faced. By the way, you ever heard that saying, we have no problems here, we only have opportunities. Winston Churchill had his own version of that saying. He said, the pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. The optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. I had a different take on it. I say the optimist is eventually going to be bitterly disappointed. On the other hand, the pessimist is occasionally going to be pleasantly surprised. Well, whether we call it a problem or an opportunity here, an issue came up in the church, one that at least some of the members thought needed to be addressed. We see again in verse 1 where it says this, Now at that time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose among the Hellenistic Jews 
against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, several things that need to be noticed here. First of all, it happened during a time of rapid growth. That's not easy for a church. There was a television program in the 1980s called Growing Pains. One of the actors on it was Kirk Cameron, who later became a Christian and is an evangelist now. Uh, well, this church was experiencing growing pains as well. We've already noted that several times we've seen in the book of Acts, it says the Lord was adding daily to their number. It's estimated that at this time there were about 20,000 followers of Jesus in Jerusalem and its environs. And you know, I have to tell you, I've, I've been to like conferences for pastors where I've been amazed at how quickly and efficiently they're able to feed upwards of like a thousand men. I mean, that takes careful planning and precise execution. But uh, here, it involved food as well, specifically feeding of the widows. Now, in our day, if you're a widow and your husband dies, you get survivor's benefits and uh, for you and your dependent children. It's part of Social Security. You know, widows likely also to receive some insurance money. They didn't have that in Jesus' day. Now, it is true that the synagogues had some help that would be given to uh, widows. And the church picked up on that practice as well. But Paul was very clear that it wasn't just a free handout to anyone who wanted it. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says this, Take care of any widow who has no one else to care for her. But if she has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and repay their parents by taking care of them. This is something that pleases God. Now a true widow, a woman who is truly alone in the world, has placed her hope in God. She prays night and day asking God for help. But the widow who lives only for pleasure is spiritually dead even while she lives. Give this instruction to the church so that no one will be open to criticism. But those who won't care for their own relatives, especially those of their own household, they've denied the faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. A widow who's put on the list for support must be a woman who's at least 60 years of age and is faithful, was faithful to her husband. She must be well respected by everyone because of the good she's done. Has she brought up children well? Has she uh, been kind to strangers and served other believers humbly? Has she helped those who are in trouble? Has she always been ready to do good? There's limits on who we should support. Second thing I want to say, though, is that this issue had a cultural, ethnic component to it. All these people were Jews, but the complaint was by the Hellenistic Jews, that is, the Greek-speaking Jews who grew up outside of the area, towards the native-speaking Hebrews who grew up in Israel. Hey, how come Miriam got two loaves of bread while Helena only got one? Ken Hughes, in his commentary on the book of Acts, tells of a church that got into a heated tiff where eventually they had to call the police. I think it ended before a judge who, when he traced the problem back to the origin of the fight, found out that it happened at a church potluck dinner where somebody got two pieces of ham and another got one. Well, I know of another person who said that uh, in their church that they attended, there was a big church meeting fight that came over the issue of whether they should have powdered donuts in the church. Evidently, when they dropped them on the carpet, it made a stain, and they didn't like that. Well, of course, there are dip, deeper issues going on uh, behind donuts and ham, aren't there? And uh, while we might roll our eyes at church food fights, this was a serious issue that had the potential of splitting the church along ethnic and cultural lines. Well, it brings us to our second point, though, the solution they offered. The solution they offered, and this is verses 2 to 6. Now, I want you to notice the first thing here was that they didn't ignore the problem and hope that it would just go away. Now, some people are, you know, take charge, get the job done types. 
Others are like that character, Pa, in Ma and Pa Kettle. Do you remember that one? They had a whole bunch of kids, and Pa was a, a lazy fellow. And anytime Ma wanted him to do anything, he always needed plenty of time to think it over, to, to, to decide which way to go. And it might help if he took a nap before that occurred. And then when Ma would come and ask him if the task was done, he'd say, well, I'm fixing to do it. I'm fixing to do it. I remember reading of one church in the south where they had a problem with termites. One of the trustees in the church kept bringing this problem up at the business meetings, but they kept pushing it off to the next meeting. Finally, the trustee showed up at the church meeting with a jar full of termites, and he said, folks, either these things are going to be taken care of or they're going to eat us out of our church. Well, once the problem was right before their eyes, they realized they could no longer let it go. And most of the time, when we do let our problems go, they get bigger, don't they? My brother Jeff sold a car to one of my coworkers. Her daughter ignored that little red light that looks like a, a ga- a oil can when it came on in the dash. Yeah, she found out that you can't drive an engine very long without having oil in it. Well, notice the second thing here, though. They involved the congregation in the decision-making process. Look what it says. So the twelve, meaning the twelve apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Now, when it comes to church governance, some churches are quite hierarchical. The Catholic Church has priests above them, bishops, above them, archbishops, above that, cardinals, and above them all, the Pope, who is the head. Some churches are elder-led. They have a board of men who make the decisions. Some churches are congregational in governance. All members have an equal vote at a business meeting. Well, whatever the structure of a church, the leaders aren't leading if the people aren't following. And if you want them to follow, they need to buy into the vision and feel that their concerns were heard. So the apostles would give the final approval for the men who were chosen, but it was the congregation themselves who were to make the choice of what men they wanted in charge. But notice that they put qualifications on which they stipulated these men would have to achieve. What are they? Well, first of all, he says they're supposed to be seven men. Why seven? Is it because it's a holy number? Well, perhaps, or perhaps it's just because seven sounded like a good number. You know, in order to retire with full benefits, at least for some of you, you had to reach the age of 65. Do you know how they came up with the number 65? I read a guy who was on the task force at the time they decided it. He said somebody suggested 70, somebody else suggested 60. He said, nah, let's make it 65. That's all the more there was to it. Well, They're also told that they're supposed to have men of good reputation. I mean, if you're going to be entrusted with a task, you have to be a person that they can count on, have a reputation as such. Most commentators argue here that this is actually the uh, instituting of the office of deacons in the church. Now, after laying out the qualifications for elders, Paul then, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, turned to the deacons, and here's what he said about them. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men also must be first tested, and then let them serve as deacons if they're beyond reproach. Women, likewise, are to be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be the husband of but one wife, and good managers of the children and their households. For those who serve well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. Now, some believe that the women spoken here are the wives of the deacons. I think it's more likely that it's speaking of women who function as deacons, what we would call deaconesses. 
It seems odd to me that if Paul gave um, qualifications for the wives of the deacons, he wouldn't have given qualifications for the wives of the elders, which, of course, he didn't. Now, in our church, we have deaconesses that serve in a support care role. We hold that the biblical position, that the role of pastors and elders is to be only by those who are men in the church. Notice the next thing it says, that they have to be full of the spirit and wisdom. They have to show evidence of living a spirit-filled, God-directed life. And they have to be known to be discerning and wise. And the last thing, it is, it's, he says, those who uh, you put in charge of this task. Now notice, they get to choose the ones that they want, but they have to have qualifications that the apostles set, and then they were going to be put in charge by them. I just have to put a side note in here. Increasingly, when it comes to political appointments and also promotions and secular jobs, the person who's put in office doesn't get that position because of their skill set, their knowledge, or their wisdom, but simply because they check off the right boxes when it comes to left-wing, intersectional ideology. So what matters is not whether you're competent for the job, but whether you have the right skin color. The latest celebrated sexual perversions. President Biden brags about the number of LGBTQ people he has in his administration. His transportation secretary was a mayor of a medium-sized town. He was appointed because he was a homosexual. The assistant secretary of Health and Human Resources is a man who claims to be a woman. He goes by the name Rachel Levine. USA Today paper named him their 2022 Woman of the Year. Sam Brenton claims to be neither male nor female. He was appointed by the president to be the deputy assistant secretary of spent fuel and waste disposition in the office of nuclear energy. He was trained as a nuclear engineer, but the reason he got the job is because he's a cross-dressing bisexual who shaved his head bald and wears bright red lipstick and pearl earrings. After he had that position for a while, they found out that he had been stealing women's luggage out of airports. A Tanzanian fashion designer said that he re she recognized the dress that he was wearing. It was a custom-designed one that she herself had created, and he had stolen along with her luggage at an airport. Now, eventually, the Biden administration dropped him. The minuses of being a thief finally outweighed the pluses of being a sexual deviant. Folks, America's in a bad way. When the very things that we should be ashamed of are those sins that we're celebrating. Well, back to our story. It says, The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these were brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid hands on them. Now, notice all of them had Greek names. So even the Hebrew-speaking people agreed that it would be better to put people with a Greek background in there. Stephen and Philip, we're going to learn more about them in the weeks to come. Well, it brings us to our third point, though, the priorities that they set. That is, the apostles set. Now, one of the marks of a good leader is that you know how to keep first things first, setting the correct priorities for an organization. Effective leaders don't get sidetracked with lesser matters. When an army sent into a battle, the generals want clear, measurable objectives. But many times, the politicians give them fuzzy ones. They don't know what they want to achieve. When the Americans' soldiers were sent into Afghanistan, their goal was to hunt down Osama bin Laden and disable Al-Qaeda. But over time, the focus shifted towards what's called nation building. The hope was that the United States could impose Western values on the Afghan people, and in so doing, Afghanistan could become an American-style democracy. But armies aren't trained 
and equipped to do nation building. They're created to destroy other armies so as to protect your own nation. They're not social service agencies. Well, the term that's used for this phenomena is called mission drift or mission creep. That's what happens when there's a shift away from the original focus and adding of additional tasks that ultimately keep you from your final goal. Now, the disciples knew that the task they had been given by the, their commanding officer, Jesus, he gave them their marching orders right before he went back to heaven when he said this in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Now, as important as it was to care for the widows, the disciples didn't want to get sidetracked from their main task that Jesus had given them. That's why they said in verse 2, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And in verse 4, when he said, but we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. Now, I want you to notice what they didn't say. They didn't say, find somebody to take care of these things and we'll devote ourselves to building a media empire or becoming top-notch entertainers or developing a great marketing strategy. I read of one megachurch that has a pastor of atmosphere and ambiance. What, did they hire a guy who had an interior decorating background? They didn't tell him that, you know, you take care of these things because we're going to give ourselves to becoming an effective political action committee. They said we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. That's the two main tasks for pastors and elders in the church, to pray and to preach and teach God's word. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 1-4, he said, First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers be made and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we might lead tranquil lives in quiet tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Christians are engaged in a spiritual battle. Paul tells us that we're to be strong in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces, against Uh, in this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, in the final analysis, our battle is not intellectual. Our battle is not political. Our battle is spiritual. There are demonic forces out there that we face. Prayer is like the outlet that enables us to plug into God's power. And a prayerless church is a powerless church. And folks, one of the great weaknesses of the modern church is there's so few of them that have scheduled regular prayer times. Leaders especially leaders, but not only leaders, are called on to be prayer warriors. All Christians are commanded, according to Colossians 4, 2-4, to devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word, so that we might speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have been imprisoned, that I may make clear the way that I ought to speak. As for preaching and teaching the word, Peter told, or Jesus told Peter, he said, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. He meant, if you love me, teach my followers the word of God. Paul, right before he was beheaded, gave this final charge to Timothy. He said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is about to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearance in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out, meaning whether they want to hear it or not. 
approve, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they'll turn away from their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things. Endure hardships, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 2 Timothy 4, 1-5. It says in Romans 12, 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That transformation of our minds comes as we take in and live out the word of God. And it matters whether the pastor correctly handles the word of truth. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 13 to 16, he says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift which is in you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of the hands of the elders. Take pains in these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay attention, close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. What's at stake on Sunday morning when I'm preaching the word of God and hopefully you're listening to the word of God is your salvation and my salvation. If I get this wrong and you believe what's false, you'll perish. One of the constant prayers you should have for your pastors and Bible study leaders is that we would accurately teach the word of God to you. And of course, if that's my job to teach you the word of God, don't you have a responsibility to learn it? I mean, how diligent you are, are you in mastering this book? The church should pray for and seek to free up their pastor to give themselves to diligent study of God's word so that he can feed the sheep of Christ. Well, that brings us to our last point, though, the results they achieved. The problem they faced, the solution they offered, the priorities they set, and finally the results they achieved. It says this in verse 7, The word of God kept on spreading, and a number of disciples continued to increase greatly, in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The word of God spread. It kept spreading, it said. Despite the opposition from the religious leaders, despite the fact that the apostles had been arrested and flogged, despite the scandal in the church when the Ananias and Sapphira lied and died as a result, despite the conflict over these widows, the word of God kept spreading. And as a result, the numbers increased, continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, it says. And it also says that the priests, a great number of them, were becoming obedient to the faith. Now the priests were those from the Sadducees who had been some of the most resistant to the gospel. Remember the high priest and his associates were the ones who had arrested the apostles. But having delegated the task of taking care of the physical needs of the church, the apostles engaged in apologetic work proclaiming and proving that Jesus was indeed Israel's Messiah, God's Son, and the only Savior of the world. The converted priests were just another display of God's grace in his trophy case of grace. As I said, as a result, the apostles achieved these things, but really it was the Holy Spirit through the apostles achieving these things. And of course, that's the same Holy Spirit that works in us today. There's all kinds of setbacks in ministries, disappointments, difficulties. I always say, you know, disappointments must be very valuable for us because otherwise God wouldn't give us so many of them. But isn't that how we learn to keep going, keep trusting? And the Bible says that those who put their faith in him, those who trust in him, are not going to be disappointed when it's said and done. Now, 
we've been fairly free of conflicts, though. We know what it's like to go through a serious church conflict. But we want to do what we can to maintain the unity of the church. Let me give you some practical things to finish up. Be careful in taking offenses for what people say. I mean, if you, you know, the, the Bible says, Solomon said it this way, he said, when you hear your servant curse you, don't pay too much attention to it. You know how many times you yourself have cursed others. We tend to take what people say about us much too much to heart, while we tend to say things about others too quickly. Be careful in taking offense. And then pray for one another. And spend time with one another. You know, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. The tendency for all of us when we have coffee time is to sit and talk with the people that we normally talk with. We're a small church. We ought to be also talking to other people. And I found, I wish I would have learned this 20 years ago. I found the secret to having friends. Just let them talk about themselves. They, they will let you go on and on about them forever. <laughs> now, we, we joke about these things, but here's the thing. The church is the place where people are reconciled to God. The church is the place where people are reconciled to each other. The church is the place where God's healing work is shown and demonstrated. We want to demonstrate it well. May God give us the grace to do just that. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we are thank you, thankful for the fellowship that we have in church, the love that we have, the support, the care. But we want to grow. We want to do that even more. We want to be people who live to uh, benefit others and bring honor to your son because we're convinced that that's going to uh, increase our happiness as well. So bless us to that end. And Father, I want to thank you again for the place that we get to meet today. Um, it's, uh, it's a blessing for us, and we pray that uh, we will be thankful in all of these things. For we ask in Jesus' name.